We can never underestimate how much one encounter with Jesus can change a life forever. Join Dr. Brown as he shares with us the four concerns of a Christian community looking to impact the world around them. This is Hearing is Believing. Today, there are many concerns that greeted you when you woke up this morning. Maybe the concerns were weather-related. Maybe they were concerned about what's going to happen when our kids are virtual learning for those next two days, when we have to be at home. Maybe it's financial. Maybe your concerns are more personal. But all of us know what it means to have concern and to be concerned. So if you remember, we're studying this series in Thessalonians, and we're going verse by verse, line by line, through the entire book of Thessalonians. And last week in our text, we learned the good news of God's salvation in Christ, that is, the gospel forms community. The gospel forms community. And so take your Bible, if you have it with me today, or some access to the text in front of you. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. And this time we're going to finish chapter 2. We're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 17, and we're going to go all the way through verse 5 of chapter 3. So the gospel forms community. And so the question that I want us to answer today as we consider this text is, what are the concerns of a gospel community? What is it that concerns a gospel community? Well, let's turn to the Bible and see. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. I'll read the Bible together, and then we'll pray and jump right in. But since we were torn away from you, brethren, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear your word. Help us to focus. In Jesus' name, amen. The word forms community. That's an important point. I don't want us to miss that. The word forms community. And that point is made very clear in chapter 2, for example, and verse 13. Look at what Paul says. And we also thank God constantly for this. Now, here's the point. Pay attention. When you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not 
as the word of men, but as what it really is, the work of God, the word of God, rather, which is at work in you believers. And so the word forms community. Just from verse 13, we can see that they received the word, they heard the word, they accepted the word, and the word had effect. It worked in their lives as believers. The community does not form the word. The word forms the community. What kind of community is formed by the word? Well, one strong aspect that keeps coming up as we keep studying this is togetherness. Togetherness. A strong aspect that keeps coming up when we consider what kind of community is formed is that they're a community that are together. Consider this. Paul, he had just three short weeks with these Thessalonians. Three weeks. But amazingly, those three weeks not only changed their life, but it changed his life forever. Three weeks. And let me say this, never underestimate how quickly a life can be forever altered. Never underestimate. It may just be one encounter. And that entire one encounter can be all it takes to change a life forever. Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. He had one encounter with a risen Christ. One, but that's all it took. The man born blind had one encounter with Jesus, but that encounter with Jesus changed his life. The woman at the well had one conversation with Jesus, but that's all that it took. Some of you have heard of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, when the fires of revival swept over this nation, that lasted for decades. Some of you have also heard of something called the Welsh Revival that happened in the early part of the 1900s. The Welsh Revival. The Great Awakening lasts for decades. The Welsh Revival lasted only one year. Small in comparison. But in that short year, it's estimated that over 100,000 people across Wales gave their life to Jesus in one year. 100,000 people, a little less than the entire Golden Triangle region. Who knows how close we are to seeing the revival, the winds of revival sweep through our church, just one encounter. How knows how close we are to seeing the winds of revival not only sweep through our church, but sweep through our city and then sweep through our entire region. One little encounter. We could be so close. I remember at my ordination a song being sung by the congregation that was there. Little is much when God is in it. And it, the first line, I'll never forget it, goes like this. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it and he'll not forget his own. He'll not forget his own. Three weeks. Three weeks. But in those three weeks... Their hearts were knit together. The Spirit forged their relationship and knit the hearts of the preacher and his people. They were a community purchased by the blood of Jesus, forged through affliction, marked by, afflict, marked by the Spirit as they were made into the image of God. We have more in common now. If we are in Christ, we have more in common now than we ever had before. And the reason we have more in common now is because we are in Christ. We are in 
Christ. That's our identity. Our identity is we are in Christ. We aren't about personalities, but we are about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ because it is Him who unites us. And the closer we draw to Him, listen, the closer we're going to be. The closer we draw to Jesus, the closer we're going to be. The more we look to Him, the less we'll notice the flaws in each other. Let me speak very personal to you just for a moment. I'm your new pastor. I'm your new pastor. But I realize that I'm still becoming your pastor. I am your pastor. But in some way, I'm still becoming your pastor. What do you mean? I mean that there's plenty of room for relationships. There's plenty of room for time to pass and relationships to be established. And I was thinking about this just just the other day. We closed the house on Friday. We're in this process of settling in, moving in. Our family's getting used to everything. You're getting used to me. I'm getting used to you. And I just want to say, as I'm thinking about studying this book together, it is so perfect. I had no idea this series called Expectations of Great Joy, my, my desire going out into this series was just to think, here we are at the beginning of 2021. We've just come out of COVID. Uh, it's going to be a good, you've got a new pastor. It's a new church for me. It's all this expectation. Expectation is going to be centered on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we get into the Bible, and then we see Paul just pouring himself in affection to these believers. And then we realize that they were only together for three weeks, just three weeks. In Thessalonians, so far, it's, it's given us many clues of what it takes to be a pastor, and one of which is undeniable and unavoidable, one of which is a genuine concern for the people that God has put in your life. Paul had a, God has put you in my life. It's my charge, according to my call, to be genuinely concerned for you. If I'm to be effective, I have to have the same regard for you as Paul had for the Thessalonians. I have to say, like he said in chapter 1 and verse 5, I'm doing everything for you. Everything for you. I have to say what he says in chapter 2 and verse 8, that I am affectionately desirous of you, and I am ready to share not only the gospel of God with you, which is what I do in a moment like this, not only the gospel of God with you, but my own self. Because, according to verse two, chapter 2 and verse 8, because you had become very dear to us. And for real room, and for real momentum, let me say this, for real momentum in our relationship, so that things don't become stale, you have to say the same thing. You have to desire, according to chapter one and seven and eight, to have this this to be this example church, to be this, this type of church. To have this kind of ambition within First Baptist Church of Starkville that the whole world is going to know who Jesus is because of us. That according to chapter 1 and 7 and 8, that we're going to have this faith that sounds forth to verse 13. You have to hear the Word and accept the Word. 
These are the elements that it takes for this relationship for, between pastor and congregation to flourish. And here's my confidence. God's going to give it to us. And I believe God is already giving it to us. And I pray that it won't take long. I pray that it won't take long for God to knit our hearts together. And we have these concerns because they're concerns that we see in the text. We want to pattern our life. We want to always let the Word of God be our authority, be our foundation. We build our lives upon the Word of God. I'll never forget a sermon, and I was almost going to do it, but where Dr. Stanley one time, he took his Bible and he stood on it, and he stood before the congregation. That's what, in other words, we want to have this type of faith where our foundation is the Word of God. These are the things that concern us because these are the things that concern Christ. This is the reason that He came, to suffer and die, to form one community, one brotherhood that has one bloodline. Not A positive or whatever else, B negative, O negative, whatever, but one bloodline, the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, you said just a minute ago, you said these things concern Christ. Shouldn't you say that they concerned Christ? Let me just point this out. Why do I say that they concern Christ right now? Because right now, Christ has a ministry now for us. What is Jesus doing right now? Not only is He upholding the world by the word of His power, according to Hebrews, as if that wasn't enough, He is upholding the world by the word of His power, He's also making intercession for you and me. He has a ministry where He stands at the right hand of the Father making intercessions for you and me. And so what I want to do today is look at this text that's before us. And then I want us to see from the text, I want us to draw from this text four concerns of a Christian community. Four concerns of a Christian community. Number one, what concerns us? Number one, what a day for point number one. We are concerned when we're apart. (laughs) What a day. We are concerned when we are apart. Look at this phrase, this phrase in verse 17. I have it underlined in my Bible. The phrase is torn away, torn away. That phrase there is where we get our word orphan, where we get our word orphan. Now, that's strange because Paul, so far, he's used so much intimate language to refer to this young fellowship of believers called the saints at Thessalonica. Look, for example, at chapter 2 and verse 7, where he uses the language of a mother. And then look at chapter 2 and verse 11, where he uses the image of a father. All of these images are showing us that we're more than an assembly. We're a family. We're more than an assembly. We're a family. And we take the assembling of ourselves together seriously. We take the assembling of ourselves together Seriously, gathering, coming together is essential to the church. I can't say that more emphatically during our pandemic days than now. Gathering is essential to the church. 
You cannot be a church if you're not together. You cannot be a church if you're not together. And if, it, if COVID has taught us anything, we have learned what it's like to be scattered. We've learned what it's like to be scattered. The pandemic and, and moments like what we have today are providentially, listen, providentially hindering our gathering. And I want to say this, thank God for technology. But more than thank God for technology, thank God that we go through all of these things to, through technology to bring this message to you today. Thank you for all of those who are joining and watching. We're so glad that you've joined and watched. But here's one of the things that I am convinced of, and I think that you'll agree. Technology, as great as it is, it's a pathetic substitute for being face-to-face. It does not compare with, look at the text, being face-to-face, face-to-face. And you know, listen, don't get all bent out of shape. Listen, sometimes there are extenuating circumstances. COVID, for example, inclement weather, where we are torn away in person. Look at the text. In person, but not in heart. In person, but not in heart. And my concern as a pastor are for those who are are torn away, not only in person, but also in heart. Those who are torn away, not only in person, but also in heart. For those who've gotten use because of COVID to not gathering. Those whose reoccurring absence has caused their love to grow cold. It concerns us when we are apart. Katie and I, when we were dating, I remember she lived in Tekoa and I was from Newnan, and that's a little over a two-hour drive. And I remember during those summers when school wasn't in session and we couldn't see each other that I would leave her house some nights at 11 o'clock. And that meant that I got home two hours later. I remember, wow, what a long drive, but I would make that drive. And they would always say to me during those days, because I couldn't go up every day, of course, and they would always, and you wanted to, and that you wanted, I wanted to see her every day. I still do. I want to see her every day. And they would always say to me things like, absence make the heart grow fonder. And you're like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear absence. I want to be with her. I don't want to learn about absence. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I just simply want to ask you, this morning. Has your absence from gathering together with us made your heart fonder? Is there a longing in your heart to be here? It's my longing for you to be here. I pray that there's no one that ever comes to this church that doesn't come anymore that I can say, man, I'm glad they're gone. And I pray nobody that hadn't been here feels that way. And I pray that the love that you have 
The love that we have for one another will not be a love that grows cold, but the absence that we'd been for such time would only stoke the fires of affection. We must ensure that we're not trading convictional, listen, we must ensure that we're not trading a convictual Christianity for a casual, comfortable Christianity. Christ didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to be faithful. Even if that faithful means sacrifice. Even if that faithful means sacrifice. And let me say this. Coming to church sometimes is work. It is. Coming together, gathering together sometimes is work. Just ask the parents of young children. (laughs) They'll tell you how much work it is. Some of you remember how much work it is sometimes to come to church. And I'm still trying to figure this out. Maybe some of you who are older can help me. Why on earth are Sundays the most challenging time to bring children to church? Friday, they get up early. Saturday, they get up early. They can sleep in on Saturday. But what happens on Sunday? Everybody's asleep. Oh, we got to be somewhere. Oh, this would be such a good moment. The temptation is to turn over. No, no. Wake them up. Get them out. And then, of course, they struggle to get out the door. And, you know, those parents that have young children, I want to say this. I want to say thank you for making the decision to come to church. Thank you for making the decision to come to church, for doing the difficult thing of putting arms in in holes of of clothes and legs in in holes and doing all of those things, tying little shoes two or three or four times. Why are you bringing your kids to church? Why are you bringing your kids to church? I bet I know. Because hearing my children recite, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that's worth every meltdown that there is. You see, don't come to Christ with the wrong expectations. Don't come to Christianity with the wrong expectations. Jesus called us to follow Him. Follow Him even if the path is level, even if the path is uphill, even if it's downhill. Follow Jesus. His way is the way of the cross, number two. A Christian community is concerned with wrong expectations. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Paul didn't want false teaching to creep in to the expectations of the Thessalonians. And so to remedy this, Paul has a solution for this. What does he do? He sends Timothy. Look at this. To establish and exhort their faith that no one be moved by afflictions. He sends the best teacher that he knows. Paul sends Timothy. And that word there that is uh, the word moved by these afflictions... It used to be used in some of the ancient Greek of, a, of a, whenever a dog would, whenever the author would desire to describe a dog wagging its tail, that's the phrase that it would use. A dog wagging its tail was this moved word. And so the word can be also translated unsettled. Paul didn't want these Thessalonians to be unsettled. And so just in case they were disillusioned into thinking that coming to Jesus meant their best life now. Just in case they thought coming to Jesus meant making their life easier or free of persecution, free of hardship. What does Paul do? He settles their expectations by reminding them. Look at this phrase. Reminding them that we were destined for this. And I love that we. It's not you were destined for this. Just you. And I'm going to go off over here 
and watch you suffer. Paul says, we were destined for this. Peter writes to us later, and he reminds us in 1 Peter 2.21, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in His steps. Follow in His steps. That's the same man that heard that word before. Peter, follow me. And we've seen this theme pop up again and again in Paul's encouragement to us and to the Thessalonians. And we're going to see it all throughout the book, these two connected themes of suffering and the second coming of Jesus. Suffering and the second coming of Jesus. We right now are in the last days. And the next significant thing to happen on God's timetable, listen, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why we call the days that we're in last days. Because when He comes, it will be the end of days. It'll be the beginning of no days. It'll be the beginning of forever. And Paul would tell Timothy later in his last letter written, in the last days, perilous times will come. We are living in those days now. And let me say this, more trouble is coming. But we were destined for this. This is our destiny. We were destined for this. Jesus told us, Paul and Peter reminds us, the Christian hope is a resurrection hope. Never forget that. The hope that we have in Christ is a resurrection hope. And as Nick Ripkin points out, there is no resurrection without crucifixion. No resurrection without crucifixion. Authentic Christianity means a cross of suffering. Authentic Christianity means a cross of suffering. But that's not all, is it? There's also a promise of eternal life with God, a promise of a better tomorrow that begins today. All of our hope is in Jesus. Affliction doesn't mean that we're not following Jesus. It might mean, if you're suffering right now, it might mean that God has you right where He wants you. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Remember, they used to feed us Christians to lions. This is our heritage. Don't be surprised, Jesus said, if the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. To this, we have been called. We were destined for this. Paul was concerned that Satan would, would come, the tempter would come and steal the joy of these Thessalonians, and he would do it through affliction. Paul is, number three, concerned with spiritual warfare, concerned with spiritual warfare. And let me say this, spiritual warfare is real. Notice how the text reads in verse 2, in chapter 2 and verse 18, Satan, the accuser, hindered Paul. And Paul's concern in chapter 3 and verse 5 is that the tempter wouldn't tempt. Paul believed in a real devil. Jesus believed 
in a real devil. I believe in a real devil, and you'd better do too. We have a real enemy. He's a defeated enemy, but an enemy that's still on the prowl, seeking somebody that he may devour. Remember, he's a lion, but he's a lion on a leash, and he makes it his desire to hinder the work of God. And so, what is our charge then? To not be ignorant of those devices. Instead, we are called to be aware and to resist him, firm in our faith, because we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We overcome, the Bible says, in the end, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You see, number four, a Christian community is concerned with advancing the gospel. We are concerned with advancing the gospel. Look, Paul, he writes these Thessalonians with the end in mind. Look at what he says here, and this is phenomenal. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. So even as he's writing, he's writing with the end in mind, and he knows that in the end, they're going to be there with him. On that day when he is giving an account for the deeds that he's doing in the body, they, the believers whom God has entrusted to him, will be his reason for boasting. They are his joy and his crown. He's affectionately desirous because he has the end game in mind. He pours his life into them. And as he says here in chapter 3 and verse 5, he wants to ensure that his pursuits are not in vain. And you say, well, when will he know if his pursuits have not been in vain? When will he know? Is it after the end of his tenure there at the Thessalonians? No. When will he know? He won't know until the end. He won't know until the end. And in the end, God and not Paul will separate the wheat from the chaff. You see, there's a direction associated with our lives as followers of Jesus. There is a direction associated with our Christian life. The gospel came to these Thessalonians in the same way that it came to us. Someone came telling the story of an empty tomb, of a risen, coming again Lord. The gospel is going somewhere. It's going somewhere, even from here. It's going to the ends of the earth, and it intends to take us there with it. And along the way, we want this message that is filling the earth to fill us. We, we want this message that is filling all the earth to be the message that is filling all of us. And so this is why we come every Sunday to anticipate the end, to look back and say, Jesus has been crucified, risen, and He's coming again. And we come and we sit on these pews and we go check our children in and we volunteer in the nursery and we run a camera and sound and we greet in the parking lot and say hello with a friendly face and all of these things because we believe Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again. 
And we say, wouldn't it be glorious if He comes while we're here? Wouldn't it be rapturous if He comes while we're all here together to take us when we'll be together forever? So we come, all of our baggage, all of our blemishes, and we bring all of our cares and concerns to God this morning. And we gather and we long for the day when we will no longer have any concerns. But until that day, we come together. We share one another's burdens, listening, praying, exhorting, stirring each other up, sometimes by just looking across the aisle and saying, hey, there they are. Look what they've been through. There they are. And then just by your coming, it's stirring up my faith, others' faiths, and causing us more encouragement for good works. We come together to remind each other that little is much when God is in it, to labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. And it's my prayer that you'll come back and join us next Sunday. We look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Lord, for this moment of hearts longing to be together. And I pray next Sunday at this church we will have to put out chairs because we have so many people that have longed to see each other and are ready to see each other. Father, thank you for this community, these Jesus people who are filled with the Spirit. May the way we love one another draw others to Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.